Beware. Caution. When you see or hear words like that, uh, they don't have to be explained to you, do they? You understand what it means to beware, to take heed, to be careful. We see warning signs of various kinds and hear warning signals of various kinds uh, several times a day as we travel around and so forth. The first word of the beginning verse of our study tonight in Colossians chapter 2 is just that word, beware. Beware. As we continue our study tonight of the Colossian epistle, looking at verses 8 through 15, in this segment or section, Paul issues a warning. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. You know, we were just talking this morning about the fact that there are literally hundreds of passages in Scripture that tell us that it is entirely possible for a child of God, once he becomes a faithful child of God, once he becomes a Christian, to lose his salvation. Despite the popularity of, of the doctrine and the prevalence of the doctrine that says that once you become a child of God or once you're saved, you're always saved. In other words, the Calvinistic uh, tenet of the impossibility of apostasy, the perseverance of the saints. In other words, the saints are going to persevere once they're saints, no matter what happens. Nothing can, can happen to change that. And yet, here again is another one of those passages, literally among hundreds of them, that deny that teaching. Beware. But specifically, the Apostle Paul says, Beware, beware, lest anyone cheat you, cheat you. That word cheat is an interesting word. It literally means to take away captive. It's the concept of kidnapping. The idea there is don't let anyone kidnap you. Don't let anyone take you captive through what? Through philosophy and empty deceit. Now, how do we know he's talking about, about your eternal salvation and that there's a possibility of losing your eternal salvation. Well, that should be evident from the context. But a little bit uh, later on, the uh, apostle in verse 18 of this same chapter, and we'll get to that eventually, the Lord willing, says again, let no one cheat you, listen to it, of your reward. He's talking about one and the same thing in verse, uh, uh, verse 18 that he talks about here in verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you. Cheat you of what? Of your reward. He specifically mentions it in verse 18. What is the reward for the Christian? Heaven. Don't let anyone rob you of heaven. Therefore, the possibility of being robbed of heaven is very much a reality, isn't it? It is interesting, and we'll allude to it again, 
when we come to verse 18, but although the word cheat is used in verse 8 and verse 18, they're two different words in the original, whereas the word cheat in verse 8 we're looking at tonight is the idea of taking away captive or kidnapping. The word cheat in verse 18 is the idea of an umpire or a judge in an Olympic contest. That's the illusion there. Don't let anyone wrongly judge you and take away your reward. But though the words are different in the original, they mean the same thing. Don't let anyone deprive you. Don't let anyone rob you. Don't let anyone cheat you of your ultimate and eternal reward, showing clearly that that is a distinct possibility and we must guard against letting anything do that. Well, back to verse 8. Specifically, he tells us what it is that can do that. What is it? Philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world. That's what can lead us astray. That's what can kidnap us, if you will. That's what can lead us away captive and ultimately cost us our soul. What is philosophy? It is the love of wisdom. Literally, the love of wisdom. Well, there's nothing wrong with loving wisdom as long as we're loving the right kind of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1 and verse 7. The fear of the Lord, there's where the true knowledge is. The true wisdom is to be found in the Lord and in following Him. But there are those who are so caught up and consumed by the philosophies of men. And as the Athenians, whom Paul addressed on Mars Hill, they just came together to hear some new thing day in and day out and to philosophize about this and about that. And there are those in today's world who are involved in that very same activity and who have little or no time for the true wisdom the real knowledge that we need to be partaking of, and that is the knowledge of God's will. Empty deceit. And the phrase empty deceit makes it clear that it is entirely possible for us to be deceived. And whether we knew that or not, I don't think we uh, would have to be reminded here in this text to know from just simply looking around us that there are myriads of people tonight who are being and have been tragically deceived when it comes to spiritual matters. The Apostle Paul is writing to these Colossians. Remember, they were threatened by a Judaic Gnostic heresy. There were those who were seeking to try to bind upon these Christians the law of Moses, a law that had been done away, nailed to the cross. There were those Gnostics who were trying to bind certain uh, Gnostic ideas, certain special knowledge they claimed to have, and the idea that humanity and deity could never become one, that God could not have become flesh and dwelt among men, that there had to be a series of angels between God and man, and that would be the only way through this ladder of angelic beings by which God could reach down to man. All sorts of things that were threatening the Colossian church that Paul is writing to offset. And he says that empty deceit, that philosophy, and then that tradition of men. You know, there are traditions that are good traditions. There are traditions that are uh, neither here nor there in terms of uh, whether or not we uh, follow them or, or, or don't follow them. We can have a tradition of 
of leading uh, two songs and then having a prayer and one more uh, song, but that's a, that's a tradition that's fine, but we shouldn't be tied to it necessarily or claim that we have to do it that way because that's a matter of expediency. We can have certain traditions that are, uh, are neither here nor there. And Scripture also mentions inspired uh, traditions. And the Apostle Paul in the, uh, in the Second Thessalonian letter spoke of those traditions that men needed to follow. The uh, traditions not of men, but inspired uh, traditions from uh, the Word of God. Look at uh, chapter three of ver- uh, chapter six, chapter three, rather verse six of Second Thessalonians. But we command you, brethren, that you withdraw in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. The tradition there that Paul refers to in 2 Thessalonians 3.6 is inspired tradition. There are uninspired traditions, and there are the traditions of men that have supplanted the inspired traditions of God. And those traditions are clearly and unequivocally condemned in Scripture. Go back to Matthew chapter 15 and see what the Lord had to say on that subject. In verse 7 of Matthew 15, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now listen to verse eight or verse 9. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The commandments of men are the traditions of men that men have bound in the realm of religion. Then when you go to Mark chapter 7, again prophesying of Isaiah, from Isaiah and saying, in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. But here in verse 8, there is something additional. For laying aside, the Lord says, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. Then Mark 7, verse 9, he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. It's that kind of tradition which the Lord so clearly condemned that Paul also condemns here and says, Do not be led captive. Do not be kidnapped by the philosophies of men, by the empty deceit, and by the tradition of men that are according to the basic principles of the world. And that may be a reference to the uh, traditions or the elements of the law of Moses, because there's a similar expression that the Apostle Paul uh, uses in the Galatian letter in chapter 4 and verse 3, when he writes to them in the context, you remember, where the Galatians were being uh, seduced to go back under the law of Moses? And he said, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. The elements of the world. And the idea of the law of Moses is under consideration in Galatians 4. So here in Colossians 2, where he refers to the basic principles of the world, it may indeed refer to those elements of the law of Moses that some were trying to bind upon the Colossians here. It may also refer and include some of the pagan ideas that were threatening uh, the church. But notice this expression in verse 8, and not according 
to Christ. That's everything we need to know about everything else, isn't it, in religion. If it's not according to Christ, we better reject it. We must reject it. Whether it's the philosophies of men, empty deceit, traditions, principles of the world, elements of the world, pagan ideas, or elements of the law of Moses, a law that's been done away and nailed to the cross that served its purpose and was taken out of the way, all of that, all of that and anything else that could be named that is not according to Christ must be rejected. And how do we know what is according to Christ? Same epistle, Colossians, right here where we are. Go over to 317 and remember that text. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, that is, by his authority, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do all in the name of the Lord. Do all by his authority. Where is that authority? Right here in the all-sufficient word of God. And so if I can't find it here in the New Testament, the last will and testament of Christ, then I best leave it alone. I must leave it alone because I'm to do all in the name of the Lord by his authority, and that authority is in his word. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is stressing here. And then in verse 9, he says, For in him, Christ that is, obviously, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Again, remember the Gnostics and what they were trying to teach these Colossians and trying to threaten them with? The idea that, no, you can't have deity becoming humanity and dwelling among men and being deity. No, there has to be, there has to be this series of intermediary beings through whom God reaches down to man. You can't have God coming to earth and, and taking the form of flesh. Oh, yes, you can, and indeed we did, and that's what the Apostle Paul is reminding the Colossians. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. How? bodily. Christ came to this earth, became flesh, dwelt among men, John 1, 14, and manifested to us the fullness of the nature of God. The full expression of God and his will is seen in the manifestation of the Son of God on earth. Remember we mentioned it this morning, he who has seen me, Jesus reminded Philip on that one occasion, has seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And you, verse 10, are complete in him. It's interesting that the word fullness in verse 9 is from the same word that's translated complete in verse 10. And so what we have is that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And how is it that humanity is made full? We're made full in him. That's the only way you can be made full. That's the only way that you can be acceptable to God is by being made full because you're not full without him. And only in him are you made full. There's no way. There's no way to be complete or full outside of Christ, outside of Jesus Christ. Let me make a little side trip here, although it relates to these verses. Thursday afternoon when we were taping... Uh, David Smith's segments for Good News Today, the Be Ready Always 
segments. And, of course, if you're familiar with those segments, you know what he does, and he takes a certain topic or subject and usually a key verse or verses and asks you to write in your Bible and make notes and be ready always to give an answer to every man who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and fear. And he made a very interesting point about when those uh, zealous individuals, those uh, those men on bicycles who uh, go door to door and and um, and uh, claim to be elders, though they're quite young men, but they come to your door with great zeal and, and no doubt with great sincerity. He dealt with uh, these verses here as to a very good response to offer to give these young men something to think about and hopefully to study further. How does what Paul said here relate to the Book of Mormon? It definitely relates to the Book of Mormon because the Book of Mormon didn't come into being until the 1800s. But here in about A.D. 62, about A.D. 62, the Apostle Paul says what? In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you, and he's writing to these brethren at this time, including them, you Colossian Christians, you are what? Complete in him. If they were complete in him in A.D. 62, then why would I need anything in the 1800s that was another revelation of Jesus Christ? Either they were complete in him in A.D. 62, or they were incomplete and still waiting for something else that didn't come till the 1800s. I thought that was a very good point and a very interesting point and a very valid point because these Christians at this time were complete in Christ. And, of course, we have other passages. Galatians 1, 6 through 9, No other gospel. If we or an angel from heaven should declare unto you any gospel other than that which we preach to you, remember what Paul wrote there? Let him be what? Accursed. Let him be accursed. And so, indeed, we are complete in him if we are in him. And these Colossians were complete in him as they were in him because they had obeyed the gospel to be in him. And we're about to get to that. He adds here, incidentally, who is the head of all principality and power, all rule, all authority, heavenly and earthly. Jesus is Lord over all. Heavenly beings, earthly beings. The earthly beings don't submit, but ultimately every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, you're complete in him, verse 10. But how did you get into him in order to be complete or made full in him? We've already alluded to these, two, these three verses, uh, 11 through uh, 13, that we're now going to look at. Because remember back at verse 6, where we studied, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And we said that that's an expression that you hear a lot. You need to receive Jesus. You need to receive Jesus. Well, they received Jesus. But was it by praying a prayer? Was it by mental agreement to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and inviting Him into your heart, accepting Him as your personal Savior, the popular, the popular sinner's prayer theory of salvation? 
Or how was it that these Colossians received Christ Jesus the Lord? How is it now down at verse 10 that they were made complete in him? Verses 11 through 13 tell us. Notice them. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. There it is, a beautiful description. As he uses the analogy of circumcision under the old covenant, the Abrahamic covenant was sealed with, with circumcision where literal flesh was removed from a, a part of the male's body as a seal of the covenant that God made with Abraham. But here Paul says it's not a physical removing of, of flesh that, we're in, uh, that brought you into Christ and made you complete in Him. It's a spiritual circumcision. In other words, where that was a literal cutting away of the flesh, what you've undergone, Colossians, is a spiritual cutting away of sin from your lives. That's what he's analogizing. But how was it accomplished? By being buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God. Notice verse 11 when he says, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. Putting off the body. Putting off the body of the sins of the flesh. Does that sound anything like Acts twenty-two sixteen? where the Apostle Paul said, when Ananias, the disciple, came to him sent by the Lord, he said, and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Arise and be baptized and put off the body of the sins of the flesh. Could he have said that and been saying the very same thing? Absolutely. What's the difference in putting off the... the putting off the body of the sins of the flesh and arising and being baptized and washing away your sins. Washing away your sins, putting off, putting off the body of the sins, they're completely equivalent. How was Paul told to wash or to put off the bodies of the sins of his flesh? By washing them away where? In baptism. By water? No, but by the blood that's applied in baptism. And that's exactly what he is now reminding these Colossians that they too had done. They had done the very same thing that Saul of Tarsus, before he became the Apostle Paul, had to do, and he reminds them that they did it by being buried in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. But notice this, through faith, that's your part, through faith, in the working of God, that's God's part. When you go down into the waters of baptism, when you went down into the waters of baptism, if you've done that, you hopefully went down through what? Faith. Faith in what? Faith that as you submitted to that watery burial, that God was going to work, do his work as he said he would, if you would do your part, comply with his will, if you would submit to that watery burial by faith, faith that he would do what he said he would do, he would do it. And what did he say he would do? Wash away your sins in that burial, in the blood of his Son. Every penitent believer goes down into that watery grave of baptism by faith. Faith in the working of God who raised Christ from the dead that he'll raise you out of the death 
of your sins, being dead to sins, and allow you to walk in newness of life, having cleansed you in that burial, not by water, but in water, by what? By the blood. And that's what he emphasizes further in verse 13 as he says, here's where you were, Colossians, you being dead. That's where you were before you submitted to that burial by faith in the working of God. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now where are you? Now he has made you alive. But when? Again, together with him. Remember, we've asked, where was Christ when he was made alive from the dead physically? He was in the tomb, wasn't he? Not still on the cross. He was in the tomb. Where then are we made alive together with him when we're in the tomb? What tomb? The watery tomb of baptism. That's where the blood is applied. That's where spiritual life is gained as we rise to walk in newness of life. Look at this. Having forgiven. Perfect tense. Having forgiven. Having forgiven you where? In the tomb by the blood that is applied. Of what? All trespasses. All trespasses. How could the objective reader of this and so many other passages come away from that reading with any other conclusion than that baptism, burial, and water where the blood of Christ is applied is the culminating final act of obedient faith by which we gain access into Christ and are made full or complete in him. And without that access into him, we have no hope of eternal salvation. Therefore, baptism is absolutely essential to the process by which we are made alive spiritually and are forgiven of our sins. And it has nothing to do with the law of Moses because our last two verses tonight remind us that something has been wiped out and that is the handwriting of ordinances or requirements that was against us. What is that handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross? It is the law of Moses. The law of Moses, with every single commandment in it, has been taken away. And so today, I don't steal, not because the law of Moses says, Thou shalt not steal. I don't steal because the law of Christ says don't steal. That's why I don't steal. I don't murder not because the law of Moses said you shall not murder. I don't murder because the law of Christ says you shall not murder. But I'm here on the first day of the week because the law of Moses said the seventh day, but the law of Christ says the first day. And the Sabbaths, that were a part of that law of Moses have also been nailed to the cross along with every other single part of that law. When we come down to verse 16, the Lord willing in our next study, because this has been done away, look what he says. So, because that handwriting of requirements that was against us has been taken out of the way, so, verse 16, let no one judge you in what? Food or in drink, or regarding a festival, or a new moon, or Sabbaths. Don't you let anyone try to bind the Sabbath on you, he says. 
because it's been nailed to the cross. Sabbaths obviously includes the Sabbath days. But we'll see more about that when we come to that verse. But verse 14 is a clear reference to the law of Moses that has been nailed to the cross. And we live today under that new and better covenant, the new and better covenant of Christ, the perfect law of liberty, the law to which we are all amenable and everyone living today or whoever shall live until time is no more will be amenable to that same law. Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my word has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same will judge him in the last day. John 12, verse 48. And in the process of wiping out the handwriting of ordinances or requirements and nailing it to his cross, verse 15 reminds us too, that he disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. What is the it? Quite likely, I think, the cross. His death, burial, and resurrection brought victory and triumph over the principalities and powers in spiritual areas. The devil and his angels were defeated and also the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities who were complicit in his crucifixion, betrayal, they were triumphed over by the Lord as well. And so the Lord gained the victory, and we may also, in him, but only in him. Are you in him tonight? We've already seen from this very clear text we have studied how it is that one gets into Christ. It's by a faith, yes, a belief, but not a belief alone, but a belief that will lead you to repent of your sins, to confess Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then to be buried with him in baptism, just as these Colossians did, in order to receive Christ Jesus. Let your faith move you to repent. Confess and be baptized if you haven't done that. And if you have but have not lived as you should thereafter and know that you need to come home to your first love, we plead with you to do so. If you need to repent in a public way, we'll pray with you and for you to a God who loves you, obviously, supremely, and who will forgive completely that once again you may be complete in him, in his son, Jesus Christ. As we stand to sing, will you come?